0: James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. Give your special attention to the word of the Lord this morning. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, again, we come this morning to hear your word. Lord, we come to be led in worship by Christ, who is the head, the one who ministers to us through the means of grace of his word. Would you bless us in the hearing of your word? Would you speak, O Lord, we pray, and bless us that we might bless your name forever. It's in Christ's name that we do pray. Amen. A uh, a recent study on the uh, most alcohol-dependent cities in America found that Wisconsin uh, has 12 out of the top 20. 12 out of the top 20. This reminded me, The study reminded me of a dear, devout Muslim friend who looked across the table from me one time and said, you must never drink alcohol because it will force you, force you to sin. If indeed drunkenness forces someone to do sinful things, then Wisconsin seems to be in quite a bit of trouble. Can neither deny nor confirm if Wisconsin is more sinful than another state we are, likely when our favorite teams lose. And there are stats to prove that, sadly. But the truth about consuming too much alcohol is not that it forces anyone to do anything but rather it lowers our inhibitions, right? Those those barriers that keep us from acting on desires that are already in our hearts. My, uh, My dear Muslim friend was right to some degree, but not fully right. It cannot force you, but it does lower your inhibitions. Those inhibitions are the barriers in us that say, don't think that, don't say that, don't do that. But it's easy for us to always want to blame something other than ourselves for what we do, say, or think. To acknowledge that alcohol does not force anyone to do anything is a dangerous thing for many because it would mean that we don't have anyone or anything else to blame but ourselves for our actions. And we are so prone to blame others for our circumstances, for what we have done, and for even our attitudes. We don't need a substance. To aid us in that, right? If you hadn't said what you said, I wouldn't have done what I did, right? Well, I didn't mean to hurt you. It was the intensity of that moment. Well, I was just hungry. I was just tired. It was a long day. It was a long night. It's that's fault, not mine. But we don't only do this to one another, right? We do this to God as well. When hard things and trials come or temptations come, we think, God, why have you Exposed me to this. God, why did you make me like this? With these thoughts, these impulses, these desires. God, this is your fault. God, why have you put me in this circumstance, this job, this family? If you hadn't, I wouldn't be struggling in this way. We sound like our first father, right? God, it was the woman you put here with me. That's what Adam said in the garden. We're quick to blame even God rather than to bless him. That is to to praise him, to believe him, to obey him. We're quick to blame rather than bless. And living in the Western world with perhaps everything we could ever want at our fingertips, we find ourselves still quick to notice with what we don't have, right? Sure, I have a car, but not that one. Sure, I have a job, but it doesn't pay me as much as that one. Sure, God has given me a family, but I don't have quiet, I don't have sleep, I don't have time for me. Sure, I have quiet, I have sleep, I have time for me, but I don't have a family. All of us in some area of our lives have said or are saying today, God, why will you not give me what I want? Why have you left me exposed to this trial and to the temptation that comes with it? We are prone to blame God rather than bless him. In James 1, in these short six verses, we see that God is the father of lights himself. He's light himself. And we must bless him rather than blame him. We must bless God rather than blame him. Now we're going to split these verses right down the middle. 13 to 15 and then 16 through 18 and so in our first three verses our point is that we see that God is light himself God is light himself and he does not tempt us with evil and so perhaps this morning you wonder you've asked this question God why am I struggling with this temptation where is it coming from why are you doing this for me or to me Before we answer those questions, James wants us to notice this relationship between a trial and a temptation, okay? A trial and a temptation. See, the word for trial uh, and test, back just a verse ago in verse 12, and even earlier in James 1, because he's talking about trials, it's the context before this, it's the same word that he's using for both trial and temptation, interesting, and James is carrying on this context, and so we might ask, why? Why is it the same word, you know, trial in the Greek? Why is it being translated in two different ways? Well, it's because James is clearly using the word in a different way. He's using the word in a different way here. Up to this point, James has made clear that trials and testing, testings are God's loving instrument. It's his loving instrument to prove our faith, to grow our character and maturity, or simply to just drive us to God to drive us to himself. This is why in verse 2 of James 1, James said this. He says, Count it as all joy when we face trials of various kinds. It can only be that these are meant to be used by God for our good. And later on, he's going to talk about Abraham's, uh, his testing way back in Genesis, when God told Abraham to kill his son, and it proved that Abraham believed God, right? So if trials and testing are God's loving instrument... But what are temptations? What are temptations? See, we tend to think of the word temptations only in terms of perhaps sexual sin or perhaps in indulging in a vice of some sort. Right? Donuts, pizza, video games, substances, Wisconsinites, alcohol is there. Perhaps it's a, a genre of books. But here James is addressing this connection about trials and temptations. And what's being seen, or I believe what we can see, the difference between these two, is that during a trial, during whatever the event of a trial is, there is a temptation that comes. The trial itself is not sin, is not bad, but the temptation to sin, the temptation to blame God, that itself is sin. And it's there for us. Consider perhaps a trial of being on Highway 94, which maybe some of you were this morning. You're behind the person driving slow in the left lane. Or perhaps you're the person who, the person behind you is riding your tail. Right? As God is is perhaps giving you a trial of testing your patience, testing your contentment, your temptation, or testing you in that trial, your temptation or the impulse that rises in you is to do what? Right? To fly by the person perhaps with an angry look or a curse in the head perhaps even hit the horn maybe not in wisconsin or perhaps you're the person being followed and you're tapping the brakes a bit more than you need to perhaps it's the trial of an overtired child who simply won't go to bed or eat their veggies right well god is testing the trial of your commitment to care for this child to instruct to discipline without anger what's the temptation It's to raise your voice in anger, to put down that rebellion, or to discipline in anger. What about a trial of a misunderstanding with a spouse, parent, or a friend? Well, God may be testing your willingness to love the person by faith, but your impulse, the temptation in the trial, is to think or call them or their feelings or lack thereof stupid, and just to walk away. See, there may also be moments in our lives where we don't know how to make sense of the trial we're in. Severe persecution, unexpected illness, loss of a job, a family member abandoning the Lord, a loved one saying, I don't love you anymore. And those hardships, God may be testing us. There's a trial. But not in a petty or cruel way, but in a way where God is asking, will you still love me if... Will you still love me if? And also asking, will you still know that I love you if? Rather, our temptation in that moment is to say, you don't love me. This is your fault. Why have you given me this spouse, this child, this job, this fill in the blank? James wants to make clear the temptations, the impulses to sin, whether it's on Highway 94, at the dinner table, or at bedtime, or at 2 a.m., parents, I know, I have four small children, whether it's in the face of real loss or questioning, right? those impulses to sin do not come from God. The impulse to sin does not come from God. God does not want us to sin. He tests us, yes, but he does not tempt us to sin. James says in verse 13 that this is because why? Because God is not tempted with evil. That's his case to you. Psalm 5 says that God does not delight in wickedness, that evil cannot dwell with him, and that he even hates those who bring evil upon others. Later in 1 John 1, 5, John says that God is light himself. In him there is no darkness at all. So God does not want us to be tempted to sin, to embrace evil, to lose hope, to question his goodness. And this is proven in that he himself is never tempted with evil. He's never tempted to do those things. He is light himself. So James is making clear temptation comes from where? What's already in here? Nothing, God's not forcing it out, and neither is anything else. In verse 15, James is James is trace or rather, James traces us grasping for that temptation. And he gives us this path saying the temptation is birthed into sin, which in time will end in what? Death. He's using the picture of birth in that when conception has taken place, it's moving somewhere, right? There is fruition of a life coming about. And that's what he's saying when we choose to act on temptation. It's not innocuous. It's not innocent. When you act on that temptation, it is taking you somewhere. All temptation, when given into, leads to spiritual death. One of the greatest uh, trials that one can face is the loss of a loved one. We will all have this. We will taste the curse of death until Jesus comes back. But there's life after, praise God. And we mourn not without hope, right? But we will all taste this, the loss of a loved one, at an, specifically even at an unexpected time, perhaps. In 2014, uh, my bride and I, in our first months living uh, overseas, uh, we learned that my, my wife was pregnant. We were overjoyed. We blessed God's name over such news. At 12 weeks, though, we learned that our son had a rare heart condition, one that would have meant a lifelong, lifelong need for care or perhaps an early death. It was at 20 weeks that we learned that our son had, had died. In 20 weeks, we had gone from reciting Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, right, and all that is within me, to wanting to blame God in that trial. We were tempted to be angry, to disbelieve his goodness, and to want to be anywhere but near him. Right, we faced a trial of what seemed like God asking, will you call me good, even with a sick child, or with no child at all. The trial was trusting God in a loss that we cannot understand. Even if we understand that death is coming, we don't understand God's timing in these things, there is a trial. There's a a trial there and a temptation to say, I will not believe you, God. This cannot be used for good, God. So the temptation is to say God was not good, that we were better off without him. It was to blame him rather than bless him. Bless him that he was going to use it yet for good. When we experience trials of all sorts, that temptation is close at hand. It is. And it flows from our desires. God permitting the temptation to be there itself is not God uh, causing you or tempting you to sin, right? God is light. He is goodness. He is holiness, righteousness, all within him. And because of that, we must bless him, praise him. Our blessing is naming him as the fount of all living and good things. And that he even will make every right wrong. Even death, even death will be no more. Perhaps today you are facing the immensity of a lost one. The loss of a job. Perhaps unexpected illness or one that you love walking away from the Lord. In these circumstances that you cannot control, that you cannot understand, how can you turn from blaming God? How can you turn to bless him who has promised to use all these things for good, who is light himself, Well, you do this when you acknowledge the temptation. Name it. I want to run from you, God. I want to run. You bless him when you repeat what the disciples then say. Do you remember that scene in John 6 where Jesus is saying wild things like you need to eat my my flesh, my body, and my blood, and the disciples start to go away except the 12, and Jesus says, you too, are you going to leave me as well? Do you remember what they say? They say, to whom shall we go? Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Right, in the midst of a great trial, in the temptation that comes, we say, Lord, I do not understand this, but we repeat what the disciples do. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, Jesus. Perhaps for you, you're already giving in to temptations of regular anger outbursts, sinful fantasies, entertaining TV series or films that dishonor God perhaps even temptations to cultivate inappropriate relationships, or temptations to not fulfill your commitments that you've made to others. You bless God by not blaming him for those temptations that are before you. You bless God by tucking tail and running, not from God, but running from the temptation, fleeing from it. Perhaps this morning you've been left unscathed, and the plethora of examples of temptations, you think, I'm doing all right. Not a lot of temptations for me. Well, you too can bless God with the rest of us. You must bless God with the rest of us, praying as Jesus commands us to. This is another way we bless instead of blaming God. We pray, lead us not into temptation. Same word for trial, right? Lead us not into temptation. But if it does come, I almost wish that line was there, but obviously God knows best. He says, but deliver us from evil. That word evil there, perhaps even a stronger translation is actually the evil one, right? That lead us not into temptation, but if, you, if we do, if we end up in a trial where temptation is present, please do not deliver us to the evil one, the one who wants to destroy us. So you can pray that this morning. You bless God by running from sin, by saying, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Right? And by praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, you who are light yourself, God. We bless instead of blaming him. In our second point, in verses 16 through 18, we understand that God is the father of lights, not just light himself, but father of lights, whose giving is always good, it's never changing, and therefore we bless his name. James, in verse 16, turns his attention to his beloved brothers and his sisters there in Christ. And he tells them, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived about what God doesn't give, temptations, which he just mentioned, nor don't be deceived about what he does give, right? He gives every good gift that we daily receive. So look at verse 17. It sounds almost redundant to us. It says that every good gift and every perfect gift come from above. Now, it's not that God has categories. Here's my perfect gifts. Here's my good gifts. And he doles them out in that way. No. Rather, it could be saying potentially two things. One is that every act of giving is good. Every good gift, every giving is good from God. Or it could be this phrase uh, that perhaps was a common way of saying the good and perfect. It's meant to show the totality of all that's given by God. It's good and it's perfect. Right? All that's given by God is good and perfect. Whichever it is, every gift, it's clear, comes from above. And it is perfect in that it accords with God's will for us. And James presses this point home. He's trying to illustrate for us how do you know his giving is good, that it's perfect for you? He calls God something that God is not called anywhere else in Scripture Father of lights. What does that mean? Well, the answer is not uh, overly complicated. It means that God is the father, right? He's the source, the creator of the actual lights in the sky. The stars, the moon, the sun. Obviously, the sun being the source of even those others. But I want you to pause and think about this for just one moment. What would exist if there were no stars, moon, and namely, sun, Nothing, right? Everything will be gone. Can you remember a night that you went to sleep and you wondered, I wonder if we'll have a sun tomorrow? No. The Father of light spoke, let there be light, and there has been, there is, every day a sun, every night a moon, and stars, even if we cannot see them. So what James says, that every good giving and perfect gift comes from God above, how does he prove it? He says, because God is the Father of lights, and every day he proves it to you that he gives you good gifts. He's the Father of lights, and those lights which sustain your life itself. Hebrews 1 emphasizes this point, saying that the universe is upheld by the word of Jesus' power. This means that God is speaking right now. You wonder, is God active in my life? Is he doing something? Yes, yes. It's upheld by the word of his power. God is speaking and holding together all of creation right now, upholding the sun above your head, upholding the natural laws which hold your feet to the ground. He upholds every part of our lives. And so if God is the father of lights, which are close enough to burn our skin and far enough away that we don't burn alive, and they're always present no matter what storms come, this then means what? That truly every gift, every gift is coming about only by God's good giving, by his perfect providence for us. Naturally, James follows this by saying the father of lights has no variation and no shadows due to change, right? It's clear that James, after referencing lights, references shadows. And though every day we have the sun, moon, and stars, our experience of them shifts, right? Depending on the day, there's variation. But James is emphasizing here that though our experience of those everyday lights may shift or change, the father of lights who made them does not. He does not change. The God we know and experience in the best of times is also the same God when we cannot see the lights. In the midst of the agony of trial, in the battle where the temptation is before you. He has not changed in that moment. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And get this, if you think the sun is consistent and constant, James tells you God is more consistent and constant than the sun above your head. Something you never doubt the consistency of. James isn't done. If this all isn't good enough, in verse 18... James shows or displays the greatest of all of God's givings. James says that by the word of truth, we are brought forth as the first fruits of his creatures. Let's unpack this a bit. First, the phrase word of truth, it's found five times in the New Testament. And in the other four references, it means something particular. It means the gospel. It means the news that God has come to save a people who deserve death, who constantly change, who constantly say yes to temptations. This word of truth is that Jesus came to save us from our sins. Us ever-changing, ever-rebellious people, that he might be our Lord and our King over our lives, forevermore, more consistent than the Son. That's the word of truth. It's that message that frees us. By believing in him, indeed, we are saved and we are made his forever. And so it is by the gospel, the word of truth, that what happens? That we are birthed anew or are resurrected or recreated into what? What does it call us who believe in Christ? First fruits. So what are first fruits? Where well, they're just that. Right? It's the very first budding on the tree. That first fruit that comes out. Right? That... Fruit that comes off the tree, it's meant to be a sign, almost a promise, right? If you see fruit on a tree, it's almost a promise to you, more fruit is coming, right? This is a healthy tree that's producing fruit. And so interestingly, first fruits is another way of denoting even Christians. Denoting Christians, that's what the word of truth is producing, the first fruits of Christians in the New Testament. And though they were the first fruits of God's new creation... As new creation people, there would be many more to come, a greater harvest to be seen when Jesus returns one day. I'll pause on this note. I think in the West we are so discouraged, right, because we, re- we hear the news and we know our neighbors don't know Christ. And we would think that our nation, in which it may well, may very well be, going to hell in a handbasket. But that does not mean the church is not going forth. There are actually more Christians on the planet today than there has been at any time in all of history. Perhaps 1 billion out of the 7 billion planet people on the planet know Christ. The gospel goes forth in wild ways in the global south. And we pray that it would do so here. So be encouraged. Jesus hasn't failed. He is building his church. The first fruits are exploding. So we partake in it by doing picnics on Thursday night here. Right? We partake with faith, knowing that these first fruits are giving way to even more this is an amazing offer to you as well who may sit here and have not yet believed on that word of truth. You too, your life can be fruitful through faith in Christ. You too can know that God who is more consistent than the Son above. Don't you want such certainty? I remember when our family finally returned from living, living abroad. Uh, we came home and we needed to get so many things, right, to be in a new home and whatnot. And we had many cousins, aunts and uncles, grandparents, who gave us too many things for our children, right? And they, they loved it. Um, they were overjoyed to have all of the gifts. And on one such occasion, as we were getting ready to go shop and get more things uh, for our home, there's one child, this was years ago, there's was, there was one child who sat on their bounty of all the things they'd gotten. They said, Daddy, will you get us a new toy today? We replied, no. Right? We have enough. The betrayal in these, the poor jet-lagged eyes of this little child were so real. And there was the accusation, you never give us anything. One of the reasons that children are so endearing is because they say what we're all thinking. They do what we do, we just hide it. We know that We have those inhibitions, perhaps until you have alcohol, you have those inhibitions to say, I don't do that. I'm not going to say that out loud. One of my favorite authors, his name is N.D. Wilson, he writes this. He says, we are all like that overwhelmed kid on Christmas morning, surrounded by a mountain of gifts, not even noticing the gift of our heartbeats, not even noticing our breathing, not noticing that our fingertips can feel that they can pick things up, that, sm- that pie smells like pie, that our hangnails do in fact heal, that honey crisp apples are real and that dogs wag their tails. And that awe, awe perpetually awaits us in the sky, end quote. And yet when we don't get what we want, you never give me anything, God. What do you not have right now that you level that blaming finger at God for. That you look up with real tears, disbelieving eyes and arms raised. You never give me anything, God. Is it stuff? Is it a phone? Is it a car, a KitchenAid mixer? Those are nice. Is it a nicer home? Is it more retirement savings? Also nice. Is it a better job? Is it a peaceful marriage? Is it a child or children who sleep through the night? Is it a husband that loves you and makes it known? Is it a bride who follows your leadership in the home? Is it to have peace about the future? Is it that your adult child will finally return to Jesus? Is it that God just keeps saying, Wait, wait, and trust me? See, the Father of Lights giving is perfect, it's good. And he is unchanging. Take your next breath. Gift. Feel your fingertips. Gift. Look around. God is giving you gifts all the day long. Don't misunderstand this. We are to ask, right? Ask for your needs to be met. Ask for a job that suits your giftings. Ask to succeed in your studies. Ask that God would bring your children back to know him. But turn from blaming him for that you don't already have those things already. Turn from blaming if God should not have it come in the way you want it to. Turn from blaming why? Because God gives good gifts, and they're all perfect, and they're all in His timing. After we turn from our blaming, after we say no to this, we must bless God. So how do we do that? How do we bless God? It's easy. Two words. It's actually not easy. That's unfair. By the Spirit, by the Spirit, we say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God, that all you're giving is good. I remember my wife, who is brilliant, in the car when we had fits. We used to sing songs about how soon the car ride would be done. Right? It's, all, it's almost done. It's almost done. My wife, though, picked up this practice where she said, okay, who's complaining? Great say five things that you want to give thanks to God for right now. And it was usually me and I said, no. We practice in the moment of the temptation. We give thanks then. That's how, we, that's how we turn from blaming to bless. So this week in the face of the trial, when that impulse of the temptation arises, it's right then that you stop and you give thanks. It's 2 a.m. when you climb out of bed to get your child. You say, oh God, give me the grace. Thank you that I have a child to pick up at 2 a.m., right? Whatever it may be, you give thanks in that moment. You say, God, oh, how thankful I am for thee. Let me count the ways and count them. And you want to do something more. What is that greatest gift that he's ever given? It's that word of truth that produces first fruits, people who will trust in him. It's the gift of the son of God whose life was sent and spent for you. Romans 8:32 says this: "He, that is the Father of lights, he who did not spare his own son, but gave, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him, the Son, graciously give us all things? If God will give us his most precious thing, it's not a thing but the thing, the son himself, how much more should we bless him? What will he not give you? And what he has given you is good then. If he won't spare his own son for you, his giving is good to you. If you've yet to trust the son Jesus Christ who was given for you, that you might believe that you would trust him and be first fruits, come and do so today. Bless the Lord by trusting in Christ. Together we say thank you God for the son sent and spent for me. Henry Francis Light uh, grew up in Great Britain, and he grew up during the Industrial Revolution. Now, the Industrial Revolution was a time filled with incredible advancements, but also immense trials, poverty, loss. People were constantly being tossed to the side, limbs torn off in machines, they didn't know how to run, and they were left in the streets to die. The world seemed as though it could not change fast enough. Perhaps, This feels similar to our days in the last few years. The world has changed under your feet faster than you know. And when he, that's Henry, looked on those changes, he decided to write a hymn about the giver of all good things, who does not change. And his desire for that giver was for one thing. Would you be with me, God? Would you abide with me in the midst of the change, in the midst of the things I cannot understand? listen to a few of those stanzas which we'll sing in a moment he says abide with me fast falls the even tide the darkness deepens Lord with me abide when other helpers fail and comforts flee help of the helpless oh abide with me Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day earth's joys grow dim its glories pass away change and decay and all around I see oh thou Who changes not, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who, like thyself, my guide and strength can be through cloud and sunshine? Oh, abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee in life. In death, O Lord, abide with me. For God is the Father of lights. He is light himself. He does not tempt us with evil. No, his giving is always good. Though our world constantly changes, he does not. By God's grace today and by the power of the Holy Spirit in you, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, may you bless him. How? By running from that temptation The trial is there, and so is the temptation. Run, flee from it. And you go to Jesus, and what do you say? To whom shall I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Bless him by praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Bless him by practicing regular thanksgiving. Do it today. The trial is not even outside the door. Let's pray and let's give thanks for the sent and spent sun on our behalf. Heavenly Father, Father of lights, the one who is more consistent and constant than the sun above, Lord, we look to you and we know that we are not consistent or constant. We know that we, we flitter about. We Our faith comes and goes. We are ready to leave you when we are simply hungry or tired Lord God we pray that you by your grace and spirit would make us faithful that we might bless your name praising it believing in it and obeying it oh God we pray that the word of truth would produce fruit in our lives that we would believe the gospel here in this building here in this city and that you would be glorified that we would see your harvest reach to the ends of the earth until the day you return and we face trial and temptation no more. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name that we do pray.